This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. In the special episode that we put out earlier this week, which contained the trade ideas of all the macro strategy team members here at State Street Global Markets, I alluded to the fact that we don't really settle on themes to get started informing the views. We let the views inform us as to what the major themes we should be thinking about are. Well, today, we're going to talk through some of those themes. I'm going to speak to Lee Farage, who runs Macro Strategy in the Americas, Dweevor Evans, who does the same for Asia, and Maria Veitmane, our Global Head of Equity Strategy. I, of course, bring the European strategy team view into perspective as well. But you know what? You hear a lot from me during the year and on all of these episodes. So I'm going to take a bit of a backseat and be moderator this time around. Just one final note before we get started. Dweevor could unfortunately only join us by phone, so his audio is probably not as good as we had liked, but it's certainly worth having him here, and all of his thoughts come through very clearly. Okay, so team, here we are. It's the end of the year. We've published our year-ahead piece. We've done a year-ahead podcast with various trade ideas in it. We haven't really covered the major themes or the big picture stories, I guess. you know, As I alluded to in the podcast last week, that was kind of by design. We don't really write our year aheads that way. But that's what this podcast is really about, is to discuss some of these big picture questions. I want to start the podcast with a question about how optimistic or pessimistic you are about the global growth outlook. Actually, Dweevor, you're in the region that is perhaps the biggest uncertainty about growth, particularly with respect to China. So I wanted to get your take first on this. Why don't you have a go? The growth outlook, if I think about it from an emerging markets perspective, and obviously Asia is a large component of that, given how important the likes of China and India are as far as the proportion of global growth, let alone EM growth. It's going to come from this region, realistically, their sort of marginal impact on growth. I would probably argue that as we've gone through 2023, the economic forecasts have been downgraded continually. I think the good news is there is certainly some signs have developed over the last couple of months of stabilization in China growth, and with it, a sense of optimism that Asia might be able to withstand the slowdown uh, that we're seeing in trade, simply because of the continued attention that the Chinese authorities are going to give to monetary and in particular fiscal stimulus. That seems to be there. The trend now is that they do want to be more active in terms of supporting domestic growth. Now, China isn't the world, obviously, as far as global growth is concerned, but I think the worst is probably over in terms of the pessimistic view on China. And of course, there will be spillover effects from a stronger China to the region and also those markets that are heavily leveraged to to China growth as well. So downside projections on growth are very much baked into the cake. The surprise from next year could well be that growth, at least in the emerging markets, actually holds up. So quietly optimistic that we've turned a bit of a corner. Okay, so quiet optimism from emerging markets. Lee, let's shift to developed markets. We've talked a lot this year about American exceptionalism. I'm wondering how much that carries over into specifically the growth outlook for the U.S. into next year. As we sit right now, The U.S. exceptionalism that we've seen through 2023 
should continue. There's little reason to expect the US to suddenly underperform or even perform in line with, say, you know, what we see in the Eurozone or the UK. In aggregate, the consumer is in a reasonably good place. Mortgages are still fixed rate. Debt service ratio, percentage of disposable income, still lower than it was in January 2020. That's a huge thing for the US. You have a fiscal deficit that's still significant. You have a labor market. You know, the demise of the US labor market has been much exaggerated. Unemployment rate back down to 3.7%. And that's because the unemployment rate was only going up because the workforce was growing. Payrolls have stayed solid. You need payrolls at about 100,000 a month in order to get the unemployment rate to go up consistently because of a lack of job growth. So there's no reason why in the first half of next year, at least, we shouldn't expect the US economic momentum to continue. Just because the calendar changes, suddenly you're going to see a collapse in US growth. It's just not there. Growth next year will be slower than this year. But I think the first half of the year, we could still see the U.S. economy continue to outperform, continue to surprise. I think eventually the rate hikes have to catch up. But I think that's the second half of the year story rather than the first half of the year story. And it's interesting, when we first started up in growth in 2023, economists pulled it out of next year. So growth expectations for next year went down to 0.6. They're back up to 1.2 for next year, which is virtually where they started the year. I think we can outperform that. I think that has to be the risk. Maybe we end the year weak, but I think for the year overall, we beat expectations again. So, okay, we're we're getting a theme of the U.S. and China perhaps performing a little bit better than expectations. Maria, your U.S. equity overweight is there again this year, as we talked about on the podcast just earlier this week. But I'm wondering if that's your take, both for global growth For U.S. growth, Lee and Dweevor have painted a picture of maybe things aren't going to be as bad as the consensus expects. What would your take be on that, both for growth and earnings? I think the reason for us to be positive on U.S. stocks is really quite a downbeat outlook on earnings. For us, I mean, the way we see uh, global economy, global earnings is that we're probably already in manufacturing recession. And Lee touched on U.S. exceptionalism. Yes, U.S. consumer has savings. Fiscal spending have been a lot stronger in U.S. than anywhere else. The kind of consumer services side of U.S. economy supported by labor market is, is fairly strong. But if you look outside U.S., particularly Europe, develop Asia, we see that manufacturing struggling. And that's a real concern for me because, I mean, equity analysts are usually quite an optimistic bunch, at, bunch and we start with uh, quite an optimistic outlook to start with, which is really interesting. So the kind of the starting point is that in, we, we worry about recession and economic side, but earnings expectations are still high. The, the other really big concern for me is that institutional investor positioning, again, that's quite cyclical. Whether we dropped and drop really into recession or is it first half or second half, what is very clear is that those earnings expectation needs to come down. And where we're seeing the biggest downgrades, that's unfortunately cyclical sectors. So this overly elevated expectation, that's a real problem for me. And that's why we are more skeptical on developed Europe, Asia, and those areas where are like far more cyclical. While US, I mean, US is a really interesting market uh, from a sector composition. It, uh, it has tech, obviously, the, big, the biggest sector, the biggest contributor, and then it's quite defensive. So it has proportionally less industrial, financials, materials companies than uh, other developed markets. And that's really why we expect it to do better. So tech, great, and less cyclicals, even, even better. Is that enough on the U.S. equity side 
to offset for potentially weaker performance elsewhere, such that overall, let's say global equities are your benchmark risk market here. Are you at all optimistic that that will be enough to post positive returns for global equities? Or is it is it not enough? And it's a case that that bonds offer better risk reward. And I'm particularly curious to frame this question. We often ask, I think it's every three or six months in our poll of the week, we ask the readers the best risk reward. So risk adjusted return for the major asset classes. I'm curious to first get your thoughts on in absolute terms, whether that's enough that US outperformance and then also to get your thoughts on the, the risk-reward question. Well, I'm going to give you a cop-out answer. <laughs> uh, I mean, this, this year, I mean, would you say that U.S. stocks have done well? I mean, if you look at S&P or Nasdaq, so those indices done fantastically well, and all that is tech, and we expect tech to do well. So probably in kind of in those terms, yes, U.S. stocks probably will do well. If I look at equally weighted indices, if I look at small caps outside of last, I don't know, couple of weeks, those indices have not done very well at all. So have U.S. stocks done well? Well, I'm not sure. And I think that that's really the kind of setup we're looking for next year. When we look at investors flow and holdings, really what investors have done in 2023 is they went into tech stocks and into cash. So those two kind of the barbell. And I would be really surprised if that changes next year. Whether that's enough, I think it really depends how you define what US stocks are. Does anyone manage an equity portfolio on an equally weighted basis? And if so, how do they still have a job? Good question. Good question. I mean, <laughs> it's very interesting. Even in our flows, we can in our holdings, we can see that investors have mid-cap bias. So okay. a lot of portfolio managers are very much prevented from uh, kind of overweighting those mega caps. So like usage rules or people who run those portfolios, they cannot really have as much allocation to those mega cap tech as uh, indices recommend. So I actually think that there are <laughs> quite a lot of people who don't have enough of magnificent sevens so. of. A, a very good parry to my very snarky question. Lee, let's go to you next in terms of the best risk reward in asset markets next year. I'm thinking the scenario you've painted for the US in particular is one where rates stay higher for longer and that's maybe not so positive, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want to actually get your thoughts on this as to whether it's bonds or equities and if so, where. You know, I look ahead and I, I see at least four rate cuts priced in for the US next year, and that's even reduced a little bit from where we were a week ago. Um, it just looks heavily overdone for me. And that makes it hard for me to 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 want to buy either equities or bonds until we get a bit more realism in how far the Fed are going to cut next year. I, I I'm gonna go down the cash route. I mean, I I, I agree I, I agree with Maria. I think that you know, if, if we take the S&P 7, the Magnificent 7, um, I'd want to own those. I don't want to own the S&P 493, though. One of the big consensus trades going into next year, um, and I talk about our own year ahead here and, and others I've read, is to be long duration. It seems to be the most consensus trade for next year, um, and that worries me. I think that could be a very, very painful trade in the first quarter of next year. Absolutely. And for the record, that is one of my trade ideas for next year. I, I particularly I like it. I didn't want to say that, Tim. It's, I didn't want to say that. It's okay, Lee. It's okay. We can take <laughs> pot shots at each other here. We can be snarky, as we've seen. But it, it challenges the risky asset view as well, because bond inequities have been pretty well correlated as a consequence of higher inflation. 
One of the other views, though, that really came out of our year ahead, I think it's of a piece with this view on overweight duration, is a bias to like carry, a bias to like emerging market duration. And Dweevor, I'm going to finish the question with you. You know, Start maybe with the best risk reward, but you in particular talked in, in your ideas about receiving EM rates. And I know that was a, a quite a popular theme. And I think it is in line with this softer US landing where the Fed's able to perhaps ease, where treasuries probably perform pretty well. What would you say to all of these thoughts then that the dollar might be a little stronger, that US rates might reprice a little little higher? The, the, the dollar as a little stronger would be a problem. Yields higher may be less of a problem. So then the issue for emerging markets becomes whether we have a similar relationship to what we have seen over the course of this cycle, which is a much stronger relationship between the dollar and between underlying US yields. And this is where we need to be very, very careful when we talk about higher yields. Is it because of economic strength? Are yields higher because inflation is higher? Is it some sort of combination of the two that we can't ever quite sort of nail, but it is a combination of the two. You need to be very careful about how we talk about this. So if we're in an environment next year whereby higher yields, stronger growth implies stronger underlying aggregate demand conditions, emerging markets tend to like that. They themselves are obviously sensitive to changes in underlying conditions for treasuries, but the fact that emerging market central banks have themselves been very reluctant to go down an easing bias uh, has given us a situation whereby emerging market central banks have seen inflation fall quite consistently. I think all of this actually speaks very well of the asset class. And if it's the case that the higher for longer on developed market yields reflects stronger economic conditions, I for one don't necessarily think that's a bad thing for EM. If the higher for longer yields ends up being another pillar of support for the US dollar going forward, that's a slightly more challenging environment. This is something we often ask or we have recently thought about in our poll of the week, which is this notion of is bad news good news? In other words, if economic activity is slow enough such that it means rate cuts are coming or coming sooner than expected, that tends to support risky asset markets. I think that's what we saw in November in particular. Dweevor, with that in mind, would you say that that's maybe not the case, especially when it comes to emerging markets? You need to be a little bit more nuanced on it. If, sure. if, if bad news implies a hard landing, and if a hard landing implies repatriation and a tendency to move back towards safe havens, then clearly that's not particularly positive for emerging markets. But if bad news is a driver of rate easing along the lines that have been priced in over the last four to six weeks, I think that's that's probably a support environment for EM. Uh, good news would be somewhat similar. Good news would imply stronger aggregate demand conditions globally. Emerging markets would do pretty well on the back of that. So I think this good news versus bad news argument, it only becomes a negative outcome for emerging markets. If the bad news is so bad that we're back into some sort of safe haven buying repatriation phase once again, a sort of hard landing recessionary environment, which I think that's low probability. Um, so it would have to be, I think, extremely bad news on global activity for it to be a, a negative. Actually, Maria, I wanted to go to you next on this because you talked about those high expectations for earnings. 
But let's say we did get maybe not evidence of a hard landing, but enough to give the Fed and other central banks comfort that the next move is going to be to lower rates or it's the more likely move. Let's not say the next move, but the more likely move is to lower rates. In, in any way, would that change your outlook for earnings to potentially be more supported via easier policy? Or is it just hard landing or harder landing is bad no matter what? Yeah, I, th I think I probably we're a lot more towards least camp of uh, soft landing is very, very difficult to engineer. Like once, once central banks start cutting, we expect reacceleration, but not fast enough for, to spark inflation. Uh, we expect Fed to cut rates and then stop QT. We expect China not to collapse. So it's lots and lots of things need to fall into place. But the things that we always come back to is that that kind of what's already expected. To, to us, we see more downside than upside. And to kind of Dwyfer's uh, discussion on um, are bad news bad news? I think for equities they are because it's not just about multiples; it's about earnings. And uh, once earnings start going, they usually tend to go for quite a while. So we, we see we see quite a lot of downside. So Lee, I'm going to finish the question with you to quote a Radiohead song. This just feels like spinning plates, does it not? Is bad news good news here? Do you have any thought on the nuance behind this? Average news is good news right now. <laughs> and we've got a band of what's okay. If the data is too strong, that's going to be bad for risk assets because it implies, you know, that as you know, 100 basis points of rate cuts is is mispriced and maybe even the Fed aren't done hiking. I must say they, they are want to tell us. And at the same time, I think if you get very bad data, and so you say we start printing negative payrolls, that's not good for risk. Even if the Fed are cutting, you, you've got to start... Earnings have got to start reflecting the risk of a recession. I, I think average news is good news because to, the soft landing, everything's got to sort of glide down very gently. Inflation glides down, growth glides down, and everyone has a, a marvellous time with that. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry, we've never had a soft landing. Everyone sort of harks back to the soft landing. Every time US unemployment has gone up by at least 1%, on average, it's gone up by 3.7%. The smallest increase was 2.2%. And yet the Fed have a 1% increase in unemployment, and then it stops there. Not going to happen. Never has happened. The question is how long it takes us to realize it's not going to happen. I want to throw another variable into this. We've talked about fundamentals a lot. We have talked about central bank policy. The one thing we always get really good traction from listeners on in this podcast is geopolitics. This is, of course, a, a variable that has so many exogenous possibilities. It's hard to know what impact geopolitics will have. After all, the longer-term implications for trade and capital flows are certainly not known at the time of, of an event. But I'm just curious, and Lee, let's start with you. If you see geopolitics being a factor this year and how optimistic or pessimistic What's on the horizon? And here I'm thinking of the US election, elections in various emerging markets, but also risks that we already know about, the wars that we have in Ukraine, in the Middle East, and all of the attendant risks around that. Just generally, how does that make you feel? Yes, nervous. I mean, all of the above. It, it's interesting, Tim. I, so I'm writing the, the last media narrative map piece uh, of the year i'm writing it today so i looked back at, at what topics have occupied quadrant one the one the quadrant one of the narrative map is we have above average media coverage of a topic 
and it also shows above average correlation with market prices. So it's something the media is talking about, and it's something that drives markets. The one that has spent the most time in quadrant one this year is international conflicts. Mm. Anyone who thinks that geopolitics do not impact markets is sort of missing it, I think. So you know, to go back to your question, will it continue to be a factor next year? Of course it will. Um, and, and the biggest event on the horizon is the US election because you know the, the tragedies that, that are ongoing in Ukraine and the Middle East, continued concerns over, over Taiwan, are all going to get crystallized into that election in November. Do you have a view on how it plays out, Lee, the US election? I know it's really early. I'm still not convinced that that Donald Trump will be the nominee for the Republican Party. I, I think Nikki Haley could end up being the nominee for the Republican Party. We will see. And I still think it's possible if the poll numbers don't improve, that Joe Biden pulls out as well. I don't know who the Democrat would be in that world. I don't believe it would Kamala Harris, but it could be it's not Biden-Trump. Not a very consensus view, but... If it is Biden-Trump, I still believe Biden would win, although I think you know the polls aren't looking that way right now, but the incumbent is generally behind at this stage. I still believe Biden would win because I think people in the middle ground would, would, would probably go towards the safety of Biden. But I think it's going to be close, and I think there's going to be room for nervousness on the as we build up to it. Dweevor, I think Lee raises the prospect of Taiwan as a potential flashpoint. What's your feel on how geopolitics will affect markets this year? I sense it might actually be less important going forward. I, I always feel that people are looking for the most extreme outcome. If you make the assumption that geopolitics impacts on global markets, well, they sort of didn't in November. You know, we've just had quite a significant uh, event in the Middle East, which is ongoing, and yet markets more or less ignored them throughout the month of November. Not to say that it's not important, but a direct link between a geopolitical flare-up and its impact on asset markets seldom follows through. On the Taiwan issue specifically, again, I think this is a multi-year, arguably multi-decade process. There's this interesting little phrase that I came across not so long ago about geopolitics, which is that Russia is the weather, but China is the climate. But China is very, very slow moving and, and extremely patient and extremely strategic in the way that it does things politically. On the Taiwan situation, I actually think, again, markets are probably, or investors, I should say, outside of Asia, seem to be looking at a worst case outcome for Taiwan. And I actually think we'll be sitting here in five, 10 years time, still talking about Taiwan in the same sort of terms that we're talking about it now. It's a very long game. Any direct market follow through from that election is probably unlikely. So I just think that geopolitics is probably a little bit overplayed. The unpredictability of it will largely be in tangential issues around things like energy security, energy supply lines, and things of that nature, as opposed to anything that's more directly involved within uh, any form of conflict that we see throughout the world. I totally agree with Tweefer about the short-term impact of, of incidents. What I was sort of alluding to, I think, though, is is a bigger picture, not the reaction to a specific incident, but I think the election in November is going to have a huge significance for the bigger geopolitical picture. If Donald Trump does win and is sort of his version of American exceptionalism or, or uh, you know, America stepping back from the rest of the world, 
that has huge implications for markets, returns, growth, etc. I very clearly remember when Trump won the first election and us as, I'd imagine, all other sell-side strategists wrote two notes on the election night saying, I think consensus back then was that if Hillary wins, then uh, stocks will go up. If Trump wins, uh, it will be terrible. I mean, all and behold, that held for what? For about 10 minutes on the on the day when the election results were announced. And then events happened. So Trump was supposed to be very energy friendly. Biden was supposed to be far more pro-environment. Energy stocks had a terrible time under uh, President Trump and fantastic time under Biden. I mean, for us, for equities at least, longer term, it's economy stupid. So if we are going into recession, I think it's very hard to see any geopolitical situation that will make that thing better. And uh, equally, any big geopolitical flare-up probably will agree with kind of our more cautious view on uh, equities and broader risk assets. Maria, I didn't even have to ask you the question because I was going to come to you and you, you threw your thoughts in there. Perfectly timed. We are, speaking of time, starting to run out of it. And I'm very, very conscious that I'm keeping Dweevor up very late at night on a work night. So I want to rapid fire get to the last question, which is just very simply, not necessarily point forecast, but outlooks for the major asset classes. Here I'm thinking of the dollar where... The DXY is in the middle, I think, of its trailing 12-month range, around 104. U.S. 10-year yields, which are around 425. The S&P 500, which actually is close to making all-time highs, if I'm not mistaken, uh, over the last couple of days. And just what the Fed is going to do this year. Dweevor, I'll start with you. If you can give me a general direction on dollar, U.S. long-term yields, equities, and how much the Fed is going to do this year to close. The dollar, I think, is going to have a more challenging year in the year ahead. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to collapse. Obviously, we've seen quite a big move already. I don't foresee it moving back towards the levels that we've seen over the course of the last year as well. So I would say a slightly weaker dollar. Uh, I would say U.S. 10-year yields have probably gone too far, but the reversal to the upside on yields, I think, will be capped by the general view that we've seen the peak in rates. S&P 500s, our equities will be challenged somewhat, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a really bad year because if we are going to see central banks become a little bit more active in terms of rate cuts, there will be some support for, for equities as far as I'm concerned. Uh, total Fed action for the year ahead, I agree with Lee. I think there's a little bit too much priced in in terms of cuts, but I can certainly see deterioration in the data takes hold in the first half of 2024. I can certainly see the case for at least two cuts as we go through the second half of next year. So where we sort of settle down into this gradualist approach to easing and settle down into slightly more challenging macro environment, but not one that necessarily sees risk markets fall off a cliff. Dweevor, thank you. You now have permission to leave and to go to bed. Maria, let's go to you with your thoughts. So I think cuts in the... Q1 or, or in the first half of the year are too optimistic. I think economy is still strong enough, like stuff that Lee was talking about, U.S. kind of savings, um, consumer being stronger, labor bar market being stronger. So we're not going to have recession in uh, Q1. Rates will stay high, higher than market expects. However, that will create a, a lot of 
problems down the line and we'll have a much deeper recession. So probably we'll get quite quite a lot of cuts in the second half of the year. Uh, so maybe on balance, we'll, we'll get what marketed pricing, but in a kind of a different sequence. That's really bad environment for uh, overall equities. So I don't know. If, if you ask me for the forecast for Dow Jones stocks, I would say deeply down. It's <laughs> a little bit more difficult because we like tech and tech uh, can prove that earnings, earnings can, can stay strong in that environment. So I think I'll probably give you a small positive on S&P, but mostly, mostly, mostly done by tax. So in terms of dollars, I mean, I'm not FX specialist, but I'll probably say that the situation is far worse than um, other developed markets. So I'll expect dollar to do better than maybe euro and other currencies and see more cuts in and faster cuts in, uh, in in Europe, in Asia, developed Asia than in US. So probably some support for dollar from there. A perfect segue into someone who is a currency specialist and an expert. Mr. Farage, take us home with your thoughts. Thank you. Um, look, Fed, let me start with the Fed. As Maria outlined, my view is that we get we get continued strength in the economy in the first half of the year, and then the hard landing comes later. Timing that hard landing is key. I think one cut from the Fed net next year, maybe two, but they both arrive in Q4. The dollar on that basis, I think we can see a 5% rally from here. I think we could touch 110 on the DXY. Not sure we'll end the year there, but I think the pain trade in the first half of the year would be a 5%, 6% rally on the DXY. So I think we can touch 110 and then maybe we drift off a little bit, but end the year net up. 10-year yields, I think we hit 475. Maybe we hit 5% again. If we get the hard landing, you know, we could see them come down again. But I'm thinking a path of much higher yields, pain trade again, 475 towards that 5% level for a high. And then when it comes to the S&P, S&P 500 flat, S&P 493 down 5 to 10% for the year, I think. Very clear. This has been one of my favorite ones to record. The discussion, I think, offers a lot of food for thought, as all of our year-ahead pieces have. But I think this wraps it up really nicely. I'm not going to every, have everybody say goodbye and thank you all at once because the Zoom call we're on tends not to like it, but I'm going to say it. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're definitely going to do this again next year. Just one final note from me. We are almost at the end of the year for the podcast. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Before we do that, we have one special final episode coming out next week at the usual time on Thursday. This will be an audio version of the book recommendation piece that the strategy team do every year. This is actually the 10th anniversary of that publication where we pick the favorite books, podcasts, other media that we've enjoyed over the past year. We bring you a quick synopsis in written form and the team members will summarize it in audio form as they they did with their trade ideas a couple of weeks ago. So look for that next week, and then we'll see you back in January. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time.
This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.